This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Ange McCormack with you for the Hack Podcast. I'll be filling in all this week for Dave Marchese. We've talked a lot about your rental home woes this year. So today we want to talk about how to make your rental home better. We'll be talking about rental-friendly DIYs and all about your rights in a moment. Plus, did you see that video of protesters chucking mashed potato on a Monet painting? Activists in Germany said they wanted to send a message about inaction on climate change. But I want to know, do these kind of radical protests convince you or do they just piss you off? We'll be getting into that story in a bit on this episode. First, though. Hack. Aboriginal people are not believed. They simply don't care. There is something seriously wrong. You're speaking again about another murder, another woman. We are not just numbers. We're humans. We want answers now. On Triple J. These stats I'm about to share are disturbing but important and a heads up for the next little bit we'll be referring to First Nations women who have died. So First Nations women are 12 times more likely to be murdered than other Australians and since the year 2000, 315 First Nations women have either gone missing or been murdered or killed in suspicious circumstances. And here's the thing, those are just the ones we know about. The real figure is likely to be much worse because Australia doesn't actually collect data on this. In places like Canada, they call their rates of missing or murdered Indigenous women a genocide. But in Australia, we're only just figuring out the scale of our problem. There's now more awareness about this issue because of reporters like Bridget Brennan, the ABC's Indigenous Affairs editor, who's made a documentary about this for Four Corners tonight. Bridget, thanks so much for speaking with me on Triple J. Hey, Ange, no worries. Those stats I just shared about First Nations women being 12 times more likely to be murdered and about the hundreds of missing or murdered Indigenous women in Australia will be pretty shocking for people listening. Why are First Nations women disappearing or being murdered at such high rates? Yeah, they are shocking. And behind each number, Angie's a woman and a family who really miss her. Um, These are typically really young women as well. A lot of them are really young mums who've sometimes been murdered in domestic violence homicides or by someone they know um, or by a relative or by someone they don't know. So some of the cases are unsolved, cold cases. Uh, And then in other cases, a lot of young women um, have gone missing and we don't know where their bodies are or sometimes their bodies are found several months later. So as you say, this is a global phenomenon called missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's something that Canada, the United States and Mexico has grappled with. And as you say, we're only just looking at it now. I mean, I think for a couple of centuries, centuries really, you know, ever since colonisation, there has been um, an extreme amount of violence towards Aboriginal women. So the the reasons behind it are complex. And I think there is just a sense from a lot of Aboriginal women now let's start talking about this. We're talking about it. We want other people to talk about it. We want to be heard. Um, And this is, in a lot of Indigenous families' perspective, a a national emergency. Yeah. And and why doesn't Australia keep data on this problem? And and do you get a sense of how much bigger it could be if, if we documented it properly? Yeah, look, again, this is a global problem. So when Canada went to do a really long-scale inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women, they also found that they couldn't really accurately say how many had been um, disappeared or how many had died over the decades. Um, In Australia, yeah, when we went to do the research for this Four Corners project, we were like... 
where is the data? You know, <laughs> we went to different police agencies and some of them do have data over over the last decade or a couple of decades. We went to coronial information services. We looked at media reports, um, archives, missing persons reports. We talked to families. So it was a lot of different things we did to piece together around about 300 women, 315 women over the past, um, say, you know, 20 years or so. But again, like that's likely to be an underestimation and we can't t- we can't accurately say and we may not ever be able to say how many Aboriginal women um, have gone missing going back decades. Your investigation tonight looks at the issue really broadly but also focuses on a couple of stories in particular and one from your article today stuck out to me, the story of 28-year-old Roberta Curry. Can you share briefly what happened to Roberta and, and how she was failed by police? Yeah, so she was 28 years old, as you say, and she's just uh, such a beautiful young woman. Um, You know, looking at her, she clearly had such a zest for life and her family. Her sisters tell us that every time she'd walk in the door, she had this huge smile on her face and she would really dream of um, travelling. She grew up in a remote community, but she loved to travel, loved to go interstate and loved to meet new people. She was really social. Um, She had a really violent partner and he had... um, been convicted previously for kicking and punching her so badly that she was lying unconscious on the ground. Um, When he got out of prison a bit later for a separate assault, um, she was really kidnapped by him uh, not too long after he was out of prison. And um, ultimately, he killed her. Uh, He assaulted her multiple times um, over the course of, of, of a few days and then she was again assaulted and she died of one of those assaults. So just a terrible way to die and we know that she died lying in pain, um, which is, you know, so, so upsetting for her family, for her two sisters and her mum who are now grieving her. But there was also um, an examination of the police response in the coronial inquest in the Northern Territory into Roberta's death and that's because uh, five days prior to her death, police had told her to stop calling because she had called one night to get some help. So we look at that case tonight in, in on Four Corners and we were very lucky to hear from her sister, uh, Julianne, who spoke about um, what, it's, what life has been like without her now in their lives. Mm, that's just one story of many that you cover. It's unfortunate that that isn't, you know, an uncommon story um, that you've had to look into for this investigation. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm speaking with the ABC's Indigenous Affairs editor, Bridget Brennan. Bridget, um, you mentioned before, you know, for every missing or murdered First Nations woman, there's a community who misses them and they're grieving them. And often this grief is extra hard because they might not know where they are or they don't know the circumstances of their deaths. What impact can that have, um, that kind of complex grief have on a First Nations Mm. community? Mm, Yeah, I think there is a different type of grief when you don't know exactly what's happened to someone or where they might be, whether or not they've died or, you know, whether or not they've died in a violent death or or, or in non-suspicious circumstances, the unknowing, I think, for families that we spoke to was really, really painful. We did speak to the family of Constance Maywatcho. She was a mum from Sherberg in Queensland and her body was found about 10 months after she went missing. And for her family, you know, one of the heartbreaking things is her teenage son, Orlan, actually went searching for her around the streets of Brisbane. You know, he was looking for her, actively looking for her, and so were other members of her family. And he said, you know, I just had a feeling something wasn't right. Um, so, you know, I think that period for them has been hugely, hugely traumatising, just not knowing that 
10 months not knowing where she was and then getting that, you know, the worst call of your life to say that she's been found dead um, or that her body had been found some months later. So again, that's another unsolved case. Um, and that I think just compounds their grief um, and their anger that that is an unsolved case and that, um, in fact, her body had been dismembered. Um, so, you know, they're pretty confident that someone killed her mm. and that this is a, a suspicious death and, and they're really, really searching for answers during an ongoing coronial inquest. Just quickly, Bridget, there's so many issues here that need solving quite clearly, but what would meaningful change look like to help um, to get on top of this issue? As I said, there's so much going wrong here. Yeah, I think it's going to be different for each community and each family and each individual. So there's not necessarily an overarching answer to that, which I know, mm. um, you know, means that it's, it's not simple. But I think attention for one, I mean, all the families we spoke to um, know that their their relative's death appears to be part of a larger pattern of violence against Aboriginal women. So they're talking about, can other people please start talking up about this and listening to us and amplifying our voices? I think if we start there, um, then that's a really good place to yeah, begin. Ab- absolutely. And that's where we're starting tonight with your investigation. Bridget, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Hey, thanks, Anne, for having me on. Hack on Triple J. That was Bridget Brennan there. You can watch her full investigation on Four Corners tonight at 8.30 on ABC TV or later on iview. If you or anyone you know needs help with family or domestic violence, you can speak with an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander crisis supporter on 13 Yarn, that's 13 92 76, or you can always call 1800 RESPECT. And then unfortunately, about four months before my lease was ending, the owner turned around and said that they were wanting to sell the property. Triple J. All this year, we've been covering your stories about renting. It's been pretty grim, to be honest. We've heard about how competitive the market is, how landlords are raising rents like crazy, and how getting stuff done, like mould removed, is making you super fed up. I want to know, though, have you ever taken things into your own hands and made improvements to your rental? Like done up the garden, freshened up the bathroom, or installed something like aircon. Or maybe you've been tempted to do this, but wondered what your rights are and if it could backfire on you later. If you've done DIY renos to your rental and made your home better, tell me how it went. Call in 1300-0555-36 or text in 0439-75755. In a sec, we'll get some rental-friendly DIY tips. First, though, Edwina Story got her hands dirty and looked into this issue. So back in lockdown, when we were all doing the 11am press conferences and we knew the daily COVID numbers off by heart, me and my partner started a little backyard project and knocked down this old rotting shed that was taking up most of the backyard. We cleaned the place up, hung fairy lights and made a cute as shit little entertainment area and we planted a big veggie patch because it was a pandemic and that's what everyone was doing. But the whole time I wondered... Have we just added like a hundred grand of value to our rental? Could our landlord increase the rent or put it up for sale? Have we just f***ed ourselves? We know the rental market is dire at the moment. You've heard all about it on Hack, about renters being asked to leave because their place was falling apart, about hiking rent prices and mouldy walls. So if you want to make your shitty rental a little less shitty, are you screwing yourself over? I asked Leo from the New South Wales Tenants' Union. The problem for most renters when they're considering this sort of thing is that we just don't know how long we're going to be in a home. 
We run a too short length of tenure in Australia. People move very frequently and that discourages some people from making improvements or from making the, the, the place nicer, which would benefit everybody. But it's hard to justify the expense sometimes. Ah, Australia, the land of short-term leases. So what about when you get permission, you make your pretty little garden, can the landlord just, like, up the rent? Leo says that when it comes to rental increases, there are a bunch of things that are considered, like how much similar places in the area are. But funnily enough, affordability is not one of those things. The, the challenge is always how much you can pick it out that this change that I've made has increased the rent and it's not just that there are 2,000 people desperate for a home in the area. But imagine this, you've applied for a lease, the rental market is super tight, standard, and the agent says that you've got a much better chance of getting approved if you make an improvement to the property yourself. That's what happened to Holly. So back in 2020, Holly found a cute little place for herself for $250 a week. Score. And the property manager came back to me and said on the down low that the owner was going to go with someone else that didn't have pets because I had my dog Douglas with me. And the property manager said, what can you offer the owner? Because I know that if you can offer the owner to do maintenance on the property yourself or increase the value of the property, they'll definitely accept you. She'd been unexpectedly homeless for a short period and was keen to get back on her feet. So when the agent suggested that she sweeten the deal on her application, she was happy to come to the table. I said, look, the Perth summers, they're horrendous. So I'd love to put an air conditioning unit in the property. I was going to get a portable one, but if I install a $1,500 unit, then I'll leave it at the property when I leave and it increases the value of the house. She got accepted and got the air conditioner installed. It cost her close to two grand. And then unfortunately, um, about four months before my lease was ending, the owner turned around and said that they were wanting to sell the property. So the, the property was on the market for about like maybe four, four or five days. Ouch. Can landlords do this? It happens. I don't know about frequently. She's essentially given the landlord the air con rather than $1,000 cash. They're trying to secure a home in a really tight competitive market. So it's more common to offer rent in advance. It's, it's more common to offer a higher rent. But making improvements does happen and it can make some sense. I mean, it certainly makes more sense from the renter's perspective. Leo points out that your rental agreement is a contract. So there's space for both parties to negotiate and agree on some terms. What the law usually misses in, in tenancy is that renters don't have an equal relationship with the landlord. They're trying to find a home and, and meet those really basic needs of survival. And people will agree to things that aren't really in their interests or don't have the time to consider what's the fair trade-off here. He says, unlike many other industries, we don't have controls over pricing for rentals. The law doesn't protect tenants against that. In, in the way that we do in a range of other places where we know that the consumer doesn't have an equal relationship with the provider of a service. And unlike other essential services, Australia actually has a really unregulated pricing structure. So if you think about energy, you think about water, all of these things, government is taking quite an active role in making sure that the prices don't get out of hand. It's, don't do the same thing in housing. It is really a symptom of a, a fairly broken system. Hack on Triple J. 
Edwina Story reporting there. A lot of you have thoughts on this on 0439757555. Ben from Melbourne, you say, I installed aircon, but I'm a technician and installed it in a removable way. Very smart move. Pete from Newey, you say, my brother used to build wood-fired pizza ovens in the backyard of his rentals. That's pretty handy. Um, let's get some practical tips on doing up your rental home. Barry Dubois is a designer and co-host from the TV show The Living Room. Barry, have you come across this often? People wanting to improve their rentals out of their own pocket? Barry, have I got you there? Not sure that Barry is on the line, but let's go to Sean in, in Melbourne. Um, Sean, you've done up some of your rentals. Hey, uh, Sean from Sydney here. Yeah, we've done um, our last two places. Uh, we probably did about $500, $600 worth of um, work in our old place to make a um, garden bed and probably about, done about the same in our current place in Roseville. Yeah, right. And, um, and we kind of... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, what did the landlord think? What happened after that? We actually we haven't heard from them. It's been a very um, interesting situation where they've just let us in and um, we, we've reached out to get a couple of repairs. But we figure, why wait until home ownership to sort of live the life we want to live in terms of having a nice home garden and um, being able to um, produce a yield for ourselves in that regard. Yeah, make your house a home. That's a, a nice idea. Thanks so much for the call, Sean. Um, Barry Dubois, designer and co-host from The Living Room. I think I've got you here now. Um, do you have some advice, Barry, for someone who's just moved into, I don't know, say like a share house rental, it's seen better days, maybe has some peeling paint, that sort of thing? What would you do first to spruce up the place if you wanted to oh, take this route? Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm here now. And uh, I mean... <laughs> Quite frankly, there's a, there's a million things that renters can do, and th- and that's not really my shtick. But I really took a lot away from what that last caller just said. They spent the four or five hundred dollars or six hundred dollars to spruce it up. Uh, regardless, they want to live their best life, and you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs tells us we need to strive to live our best life. So, being that the built environment or the space that we live in has such such a a, a strong effect on us as humans. Uh, it, it, we're, when we might be investing in the bricks and mortar, so to speak, but we're actually investing in ourselves and getting more out of our life. And uh, so, sure, you can do removable wallpaper, you can make light fittings, you can revamp stuff, all that stuff's on YouTube and you can see a million things like that. But I really encourage people to take ownership of their space, whether it's rented or owned, and because you'll get more out of your life if you do that. Mm, so you're saying, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but like you live in a house, you want to make it feel like a place you want to be and don't put up with, you know, a space that doesn't feel like home. Yeah, because we, as humans, we, we need to live a balanced life. And, and you're right. In Australia, we seem to be the, the, the country of short rents. Uh, but the fact of the matter is home ownership in this country, contrary to what the, a lot of media will tell you, is less and less every year. We're, since 1975, there's been less and less home ownership in this country. So more and more of us are renting. So you, it, it's going to be a cultural change, but we're going to have to change and start taking ownership of our rented spaces. Our homes are our homes, and, and a home offers security, a sense of self-esteem, mm. something to be proud of. So when it comes to uh, – I do have some rules, however, uh, if you want to make – 
make your home better, cheaper. Yeah. Uh, so I can share those with yeah, you. Yeah, let's get into but- some of those, especially on a budget. I mean, uh, 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 things like design choices, like furniture and plants and that sort of thing, lighting even, the ways to achieve this, or is it going, getting out the tools and actually changing some of your property oh, as well? Like what, what's yeah. going to be the, the best way to do that? It's a combination of all those things and start with a plan first and foremost, of course. Um, what I do see a lot of renters doing wrong and, and, and general homeowners do this wrong as well. They, they, we are uh, obsessed with consumerism. So we'll, we'll go to Harvey Normans or Freedom or Ikea or one of those guys and we'll see a lounge that we really, really like. Okay. And it creates an image in our head of how life should be for us. We should be laid stretched out with our partner at the other end of the lounge and a coffee cup in, a, in one hand. And, and all of a sudden we're interest only in on this piece of furniture and we get it home and it's wildly too big for the space. So you're not acquiring the balance you need from a home. So first and foremost, I, I do a couple of rules. I measure my home out and I have a plan of the home. The second thing I would do is identify this sort of mood I want to have in each room. Uh, if it's uh, the entry of the space, even a one-bedroom apartment has an entry. And when you have guests to your home, sometimes either for the first time, but sometimes these people are people that you're going to know for the rest of your life. You want to have them feel very comfortable in the entry of the home and know where to go. So rather than talking about, like I said, wallpaper and paint stripes and stuff like that, I'd like you just to think about using plants and furniture to guide your your guests through the space. Uh, the beautiful thing about architecture is it can create a space, but the way you furnish it, and especially when it comes to balance and scale, you can really direct the journeys that people have through your home and that's what becomes interesting and that's what makes your home special to them. That's really um, interesting. Yeah, I feel like lots of people listening right now will be thinking about their entryways and thinking what they could do to make their spaces a bit more welcoming and that kind of thing. Um, even if they are limited by being a renter, there are options, as but, you're saying but, there, yeah. You, you can be, but you, you can imagine if, if everybody listening now imagines opening up the door of their unit, their home, their their flat, their unit, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and what do you see? In Generally, in Australian architects, you get to see everything. There are no surprises. (laughs) So think about an oversized pot with a large tree in it uh, or something that will grow into something large, does a couple of things. It, it, It takes toxins out of the air, creates oxygen for you. But what it will also do is give a sense of mystery on what's around the corner, which may be a slightly more intimate zone being a living space. Mm. As humans... Uh, we want to be, because it's in our DNA, we want to be directed to was when we were cavemen was the fireplace because that's where we met guests. Uh, the fireplace was just outside the cave and that's where we met them and then they had to be invited in. The modern day fireplace is the kitchen. Yeah, so when right. they open the door, they want to sort of be directed. They want to have their shoulders pointed towards the kitchen and you can do that with uh, maybe a, a small hall stand, maybe a plant, so many uh, options, but, Barry, and I think, you know, it's such a good entry point, literally, to this conversation about making your homes, um, rental homes more homey. Um, thanks so much for your time, Barry. We, we do have to keep moving. On the Triple Day text line, someone says, I've put in a few gardens at past rentals, not too expensive, but worth it. I love to go back and see how they grow. What is worth more, art or life? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet? and people on Triple J.
Got to keep moving. Have you seen those videos of climate change protesters throwing stuff or gluing themselves to famous paintings in galleries? There's been tomato soup thrown at a Van Gogh painting. People glued themselves to a Picasso. The latest protest happened in Germany yesterday. Protesters threw mashed potato on a Monet painting. It wasn't damaged as it's behind glass. The protesters said Monet loved nature and captured its unique and fragile beauty in his works. How is it that so many are more afraid of damaging one of these images of reality than of the destruction of our world itself? I want to know, do you think these protests help the fight against climate change or are they so divisive and distracting that they kind of do the opposite? Let me know what you think about these kinds of protests. Text in 0439 757 Dr Rod Lamberts is the de- Deputy Director of the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the ANU. He researches public activism. Dr Lamberts, thanks for speaking with me. What do you think about these protests? Do they work? That's always a good question. It's not about whether they work, it's whether they work for certain audiences and for certain purposes. Like there's no generic, it works or it doesn't, mm. you know. It, they haven't and solved I think that's climate change with this. <laughs> no, they haven't, but it's also, you know, like they're not they're not talking to conservative um, oil lobbyists when they do that. They're talking to a different audience, you know, and I think that's why we've got to talk about whether it works or not in the context of who they're actually trying to communicate with, what they're trying to achieve. So the, the blunt questions about is it good or bad, kind of don't work. What, what audience do you think they were, they were going for, if, if not a broad one, in this, in this performance stunt, whatever you want to call it, this um, you know, piece of activism? Well, I think it's a few. It's obviously like any communication act, you could argue, is for your in-crowd, you know, your own people to say, look, we're doing something, maybe you should step up too, or you know, there's a certain kind of performative aspect to that, and we all do it with our own tribe. But there's also, there might be an idea or a hope that it will shock and awe some people who aren't normally listening. Um, I'm not convinced that will, but I don't think that means they shouldn't. So they're really, they're also talking to media. I mean, as you know very well. I mean, we're talking about it right now. Yeah, Exactly. (laughs) You know, success, success achieved. We're we're talking about it. It's been all over international newspapers or equivalents. So they've made a noise. They've drawn attention to the issues that concern them. So that you could argue is successful. Right. I mean, they would argue that, yes, the issue is now in the spotlight. We're talking about it right now on Triple J. But we're actually, I feel like the the thing that's more in the spotlight is the actual act itself. We're talking more Mm. about the painting and the potato than climate change, aren't we? Yeah, we are a bit. But again, it depends who's talking. So people like me, we're not talking about the paintings. Every example I've seen, the paintings are behind perspex or glass. They're really not in threat. They're not in danger. Um, it's not these people's intention, as far as I can tell, to cause that damage. So, yeah, certain media or more, I, I hesitate to use the term, mainstream media, <laughs> will talk more about the the artwork and the disrespect and all these kinds of things. But that's that's not all we talk about, you know. The, the people who would be moved by this are talking about the climate thing. Maybe others will be uh, driven to do something more themselves as well, not necessarily throw food products that are cover <laughs> over a painting, but, you know, like just maybe be motivated to do a little bit more because, I mean, you do activist activities because the normal systems aren't working for you. Right, and even if the, the reaction or, or what comes after is a small thing, that that could be seen as an achievement, I suppose. Um, the yeah. thing is with these kind of things, though, is that people get really angry. Like, I'm mm. seeing it on the text line already. They think it's, even if, you know, you are all for climate action, people are saying, you know, it's useless. They get, I like, angry at this idea of an artwork being collateral damage, even if it doesn't actually get damaged in the process. Mm. But what effect can that anger have on a movement if you're turning off people that are, it already for your cause. 
Look, it, it might turn some off, but the thing is, I mean, no communication act is perfect either. You know, um, when I hear certain groups talk about clean coal and things like this, they make me angry. You know, I think I think those are ridiculous assertions, and they're causing a lot more damage than uh, tomato soup on a perspex screen. So, you could argue these are similarly bad acts of communication. So, of course, some people are going to get furious, but again, you could argue that is the purpose. So getting people angry at least means you're getting attention. It's kind of like the Donald, Donald Trump effect, you know. It might be terrible, but it's making people sit up and pay attention to you. So when you speak again or do something again, they'll see you again. And maybe they'll go, it's those buggers again, but there they are in the media cycle once more. And maybe once we see things repeated, they get traction. You know, they stick in our heads, whether we like it or not, and they kind of become true. So enough of this may move it away from how horrible it is they're throwing stuff at paintings to, huh, I wonder why they're doing that so often now in, in so many places, mm. possibly. Yeah, and I suppose the other option, there's kind of um, a whole spectrum of activ activism and another option is doing something like marching peacefully in a protest and no one really gets angry about that. But mm. there's also the argument that that doesn't really do anything. We, we don't cover as many stories about that or it doesn't necessarily gain as much traction, right? So I suppose yeah. protesters, when they want to say something, they have to weigh up those choices, right? Well, it's a boring story. You know this better than me. You know, a bunch of people walked down the street, nothing happened, then they went home. Great story. Real headline stuff, you know. So there's no traction there. People will forget what it was about if they even paid attention in the first place. Whereas these kinds of acts are very clear. You know, they're unambiguously strong motivated like communication attempts. Mm, very interesting. And it's definitely got us talking. Well, that's all we've got time for. But Dr. Rod Lamberts, thanks so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Cheers. Hack on Triple J. That was Dr. Rod Lamberts there. He's the Deputy Director of the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the ANU. He researches public activism. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of The Hack Podcast. I'll be back with you tomorrow.